1: Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the TakeCast. My name is Davis Maddock. You guys can find me on Twitter at Davis Matic. In this episode of the show, I am joined by plus EV sports better Rob Pizzola. He is involved with BetStamp, which we get deep into over the course of the show. And you know, the reason why I wanted to have Rob on is yes, I know we've been very heavy on the NFTs uh, and a little bit of DFS chat recently as well. But Sports betting is is a lot of what I see people talking about on Twitter. It's a lot of what I see people talking about, you know, in Discord and Slack and everything. And so uh, I know that Rob is a very good sports better. I know that he is as close to a, you know, a, a true professional syndicate gambler that we are going to get on the show, and uh, I really appreciated his perspective on everything in the sports betting world, and I think that you guys will too. Definitely make sure to follow him on Twitter. Uh, definitely make sure to check out Bet Stamp. and if you want to support this program, you can sign up for bonus episodes on patreon.com takecast, or you can just leave a rating or review on iTunes as well all right everyone very excited to bring in Rob Pozzola from bet Stamp and the co-host of the circles Off podcast to the program. I know we've been we've been super heavy on the nFT stuff over the last month. some people are into it. some people uh, are not I could tell that when the uh, the blender episode was was very popular that people were wanting the return of some sports chat so I'm very excited. To be joined by by Mr. Pizzola. Rob. How you doing, buddy?
2: I'm doing well, man. Cowboys are having a good year. Um, hockey season started now, which is like my livelihood in terms of sports betting. So it's a it's a good time of year for me.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's uh, it's. A, I didn't know you were a Cowboys fan. That's I am, uh, yeah. so. Your story is probably well, very similar. Probably just they were the team that was on TV when you first started watching football.
2: Sort of. Um, so in my childhood. Uh, being like a, a really shitty child, I would say. I just basically right. used to cheer against all the teams that my father uh, or cheer for all the, the teams that my father hated, basically. Uh, so my father is was a, a big Washington uh, Redskins fan at the time, now football team fan. Um, and he just dis- strongly disliked the Dallas Cowboys. And um, because of that, I rooted for the Dallas Cowboys. Unfortunately, there's pros and cons to that because as I was growing up, uh, my father's a huge Blue Jays fan being Toronto-based and the Blue Jays won two World Series in the early 90s, neither of which I enjoyed as a child because I was rooting against them at that point. So um, pros and cons to that. But yeah, so, so like my fandom outside of the Toronto-based teams is, comes from just rooting against my dad when I was younger.
1: Yeah, that, so that's, that's actually not the way it was for me is my dad grew up literally when the only teams on TV were the Cowboys or the Steelers. And so if you didn't live somewhere where you got the local broadcast, you just chose one of those teams. And my dad chose the Cowboys. So, but during my lifetime, they've always been bad. You know, this is basically the best the Cowboys have been because I'm 29. So I have no, you know, I have no memories of Aikman. Like Romo, Romo was as good as it got.
2: Yeah, see, I, I'm born in the mid eighties. So I, I'm old enough to remember the, the Super I'll be, I was still very young at the time, uh, but I used to have, you know, Aikman posters all over the wall. Uh, Russell Maryland is like a player that I random player that I used to love just in general. And, uh, Michael Irvin, obviously Emmett Smith, like it, it was just, there was a lot of stop star power at that time. It was easy to cheer for that team because they were so good. Um, but yes, in hindsight, would I have picked a different team probably because it's been a lot of pain over the years. Like I remember the Quincy Carter days, which were just absolutely brutal, and um, oh, I
1: remember Quincy. Yeah.
2: Yeah. It's just like, it's been painful. And, and um, I did love Tony Romo. I, I still feel he's probably one of the most underrated players in the history of the NFL, just because um, I, I don't know he just had like this penchant to, sh- to shit the bed in the, in like the nationally televised and primetime games. And no one ever really watched him outside of that and wouldn't realize how great he was, which is frustrating for me, always like defending Romo all the time, but uh so those were good years, even though we didn't win because we had a great football team that just ended in pain every year. But uh yeah, I mean that's why it's exciting this season. It's like this team has kind of made me believe at this point. They're winning games which um historically the, these they, cowboys yeah, would they, find a way they to lose. lose.
1: They lose, um, like they they lose these like they're three and three normally, like normal cowboys luck. They're like they lose that Patriots game. Growing up, they lose that Patriots game hundred percent of the time. They never win that game, they always do the wrong thing. They never get the turnover to luck. So I I I'm with you. I'm feeling good. Um, I'm feeling optimistic. So but before we get into the, the nuts and bolts here a little bit, uh why don't you why don't you tell the people about Bet Stamp and how they can interact with it?
2: Yeah, BetStamp is uh the best way I could describe it, it's it's a sports betting utility. So if you bet on sports, it's a way to improve your craft, basically. Um, you can download it, whether that's on Android or iOS, or you can just visit the website, which is betstamp.app. Um, at, its, you know, at its core, it's a great line shopping utility. And I tell people this all the time, but one of the easiest ways to gain an edge in sports or to increase your edge is to just be able to find the best line available to you at any given moment and bet that line. And I think too often people just have one sports book. They constantly go to the same place to bet every single time. And in the long run, that's doing them damage. Um, whereas like line shopping is just a very, very simple form of stuff that we would do in our everyday lives. Like if you were going to go to the grocery store and you saw the same bag of potato chips on, on a rack and, and three of them were the same price and one of them was much cheaper, you'd always pick up the cheaper one if it was the exact same bag. And I don't know why sports bettors don't do this, uh, but it's just a really easy way um, for uh, you to line shop as a sports better. There's other utilities as well. Um, if you're, you're going for like a, a public persona and want to track your picks and verify those picks, um, so that no one can question your record or anything like that. Our app allows you to do that. Uh, but there's a lot of stuff in there for sports fans, just in general, uh, sports betters just in general. And, and I would highly suggest that if you do bet on sports to check it out.
1: Yeah, that I that is uh the the not knowing how you're doing and just kind of feeling it out. That I mean, that's a very easy trap to fall into. I am not a super serious sports better. I I greatly prefer betting futures to betting, you know, sides and totals. And 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 even um, you know, the the fantasy industry is now birthed this cottage this cottage industry of betting on player props. And, you know, some people are very rigorous about tracking those and they're you know, they're really grinding the edges. And like, I, I kind of just prefer to like, i I'm watching the Cowboys. I'm betting the over on, on CD lamb, like receiving yards, because I, I actually think, and this has always been my opinion. Sports betting is much harder than DFS because peer to peer games are, are just going to be a lot easier than not only are you playing against your peers in sports betting. Cause you know, people are going to take the other action uh the other side of the lines, but you're also playing against, you know, basically it would be like playing a head to head against the absolute sharpest players in all formats, because, uh, even, even bad sports books are stealing their lines from the best sports books in the world. So very, very rigorously tracking your stuff and seeing where your leaks are, I think is super important. If, if you want to take it seriously now, I I am of the opinion and again, always been of the opinion that sports betting is just fun Mm -hmm. and that, um, I don't. How much do you like? How much have you played DFS? How familiar are you with it, like as an industry?
2: So I actually started as a before I got into uh, professional sports betting. I was actually uh, a DFS player full time. So I actually left a nine to five job at the Score. Um, okay. The story I was basi- the Score. Well, so I I was basically helping them build a DFS platform. Um, so I was the product manager there, and I was they knew I was heavily into DFS. So we were building a DFS platform at the Score, and this was right around the same time that um there was like this whole that DraftKings or FanDuel scandal was going on where I think it was right. an employee of DraftKings who was using ownership uh and ownership numbers from DraftKings to play at FanDuel and, and had a huge edge um so a couple of weeks before we released the app that we're going to release at the score there was basically like an internal memo that went out to all employees saying you can't you know, play know anymore you can't play DFS anymore um, and I just basically had a, a meeting with the CEO and, uh, the COO at the time. And I said, I'm making more money playing DFS than I am at my full-time job. So this is going to be the end for me. And I left and I pursued full-time DFS, which went very well for about a year. And then like my edge was definitely decreasing. And I noticed that it was yeah, decreasing games,
1: games got real hard.
2: He did like, there was, <laughs> I wish I had really capitalized a lot more than I did in the infancy of DFS because there was stuff that people just had no idea what they were doing. Like stacking one through five in an MLB lineup was very foreign at the time. Right. In a like nobody really knew what they were doing. They just picked random players from teams, and it was like a massive edge. And then everybody just kind of figured that out, and you had to okay, I have to adapt. Instead of going one through five, I'll do one through four and the number six batter in the lineup to, to differentiate. And then eventually other people caught onto that. And it got to the point where I just felt there were um, so few edges to be had anymore. I'm like, well, I already have all these these player level models. How can I transform this into um, you know team-based sports betting? Um, and that's kind of how I went that route. And it's kind of just worked out for me ever since. And I still do a little bit of DFS here and there. I do a, a few player props here and there but it's mostly um, big market sports betting sides and totals at this point.
1: So the reason why I ask is that kind of after that, after Ethan gate is what we call it, the, the real DFS nerds, it, um, a lot of what DraftKings not really FanDuel because FanDuel doesn't care about marketing that much really, but a lot of, you know, the, the DraftKings marketing messaging was like, well, you know, this is fun. This is fun for people. And DFS is fun, but I actually think sports betting for most people is way more accessible and way more fun. And I, even, even like morally and ethically, I don't really have a problem with sports betting being marketed as entertainment and being like, sometimes you're going to win. Sometimes you're going to lose, you know, futures are fun. Same game parlays. All of these things are fun, even if they don't have this like huge ROI. So I wonder your thoughts on that.
2: I, I, so I agree that it can be fun, but the reality of it, I tell my friends this all the time, right? Sports betting is fun when you're winning. Like it's not fun right. it's, to, to sure. lose all the time. Right. And that's that's where I kind of have a problem with the way that the industry is headed because um, it's, we've kind of like created this culture of misinformation, um, putting out content that's not really going to help people win in the long run. And I mean, it's going to lead to some problem gaming down the road and already has in some scenarios, but like my whole thing is sports betting can be fun. There are things that you can do to like, make it more fun for sure. And yeah, it's, it's great to, to have a ton of DFS action and a hundred different props going on an NFL Sunday. But when you go 30 and 70 on those props, it's not fun at the end of the day. And you're kind of miserable for the remainder of the week. So um, I, I think it's kind of like a balance. Uh, I think it can be fun. I think there's like small things that people can do to improve their craft where, okay, rather than being a losing better, maybe they're just a, a coin flipping better. And right. And over time, better. Exactly. And it's going to be ups and downs. Um, that in my opinion is fun because you're getting some entertainment out of it, but just bleeding money constantly and losing regularly. That's when I think it just becomes uh, pretty miserable for someone.
1: Which, um, which I think is like what a lot of the the content is, is kind of, well, I think a lot of honest content is, is aimed at, at that stuff. Yeah, you know, the, the marketing of like, I'll go, I I'm, I'm 70 and, and 15 on player prop lines and things like that. Like the way Levitan does it is really honest. Cause he's like, this is what I bet. If you don't bet this, when I bet it, you're probably going to get a bad line. I'm getting limited. Um, like that, that kind of marketing I think is, is honest and good, but the, the marketing of, player betting on player props specifically as like this newfound source of wealth. Even if you yourself, the, the content provider, you actually are crushing it. The odds that the people tailing your picks will also be able to crush it seems rather low considering what we know.
2: It is. So like, if you're a winning better, that the chances of somebody being able to tail those bets is extremely low. Like you mentioned, you know, you, you point out the Levitan example, and I've been doing a a periscope uh, for NFL on Sunday mornings for, for years now, And the reason I personally do it on Sunday mornings, I'm very open and upfront about this is I don't want to give away a ton of information on what I'm betting over the course of the week. Right. People are like, oh, why don't you do it on Tuesday? That way we can get down on the same numbers as you. Well, I mean, that's that's a detractor for me for for a lot of reasons that I don't want to get into. But on Sunday mornings, I used to say, uh, you know, I bet that I bet the Denver Broncos at minus three but the number is now four. It's kind of out of my range. I wouldn't advocate betting it at this point. Then at the end of the day, Denver would win by a couple touchdowns and I'd get a bunch of DMs from people on Twitter saying, thank you for your Broncos pick. And I'd be like, what are you talking about? I, I said not to bet the Broncos because the line is gone. And they're like, well, I just wanted to be on the same side as you, um, which like the, the recreational better doesn't really understand the um, I guess, like price sensitivity just in general. And I think that's kind of one of the biggest problems with this market right now is the lack of educational content and maybe the lack of willingness for a recreational better to consume that type of content. Um and it creates this like extreme imbalance where it's just I, I don't want to call people dumb. This is not the, the, but it's kind of like the blind leading the blind in a lot of senses, where you have a lot of content creators out there who put out misinformation other people just follow because they see a a hot streak or um whatever and you know like levitan doing stuff like that he's absolutely right but the 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 reality is the vast majority of people just want to be on whatever side adam levitan is on doesn't matter if he bet Najee harris over 50 and a half yards and the number is now 70 people aren't price sensitive enough to say this is no longer a bet they're just going to go and bet it and they're creating negative expected value for themselves. So it's very difficult. And at the end of the day, it's on the person who's placing down that bet to, to really understand the space. And we're just nowhere close to that yet.
1: Yeah, that's true. I mean, we're, we're far away. I mean, I think that people are certainly better at understanding things like that, like understanding the difference between uh, you know, three and three and a half, right. Or, or six and a half or seven. Um, And I uh, have you I Ed Miller I assume you Mm -hmm. you're familiar with him read his book I actually think his book has had uh, a great deal to do with that because I think a lot of people have read it I also know it's like uh, a lot of people have touted the stuff from that book which Mm -hmm. is that's kind of the way it, it works like I I know that my understanding of how sports betting worked before and after I read that book was kind of like night and day like I could have told you that yeah, probably your NFL side on Sunday morning is bad. Like probably uh, no, matter, no matter what side you're on, it, it's probably bad, but at least I have like a, a better um, understanding of it.
2: Right, so the challenge nowadays is um, if, if I'm a complete noob to sports betting and I want to learn about sports betting in general, what I'm probably going to do is just Google Google some sports betting related terms, in which case I'm very likely going to find a major affiliate in the U.S., or I'm going to get a sports book, sports books, content in the U S right. These, these are who are dominating the Google searches. So as a consumer who knows nothing about sports, I'm trusting what Google is returning to me in general, but I'm basically learning only simple concepts. And on top of that, I'm being led directly to an operator or directly to an affiliate whose sole goal is to get me to deposit into a site anyways. Um, So they're more likely to feed me information that is likely to get me to deposit. Like here's a way to beat NFL teasers, which honestly, like a lot of that is complete garbage at this point. Um, here's a pick for this weekend type of stuff, tons of picks content, right? So at the end of the day, I think the biggest issue right now is that there are major operators and affiliates that are dominating in terms of SEO uh, in this industry. And it's just very difficult for someone who doesn't really know about sports uh, to come into the space and, um, uh, and really truly gain anything of, of value right out of the gate.
1: Yeah. So like, um, you know, a lot of, so a lot of the stuff that we do at sports grade is like, you know, we, we have like some tools and stuff on the website and we do, uh, you know, we have, we have programming stuff and we, we get, you know, we give picks. We're like, you know, every day on the show, I'll be like, you know, I like this prop or whatever. But I, I think that I think there is a big difference between because like, people want that content. Right. Like there is a there is a huge demand and market for the content in the same way there is a huge market and demand for DFS content. It is it is just um, the, the way in which it is presented, I think, is so important because when when it when sports betting information even more so than DFS. I actually think you can intellectually, honestly market a DFS product and say, if you use this product correctly, you are more likely than not to be a winning player, or these tools will definitely help you win. And I think that's just a much more difficult argument to make for sports betting because it's, it's the decisions are simpler, right? Like which, which side of this player prop do you want to be on? That's much simpler than, you know, stacking and bring back and like leverage and running ten thousand sims and all of that, but it's harder to to win those decisions, right? Like the 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 coin flips are harder to win.
2: Oh, for sure. I mean, at the at the end of the day, the, the like it, you can't just um, you know boil down sports betting to like a few simple rules and say, just go about this and you're going to be a winner. That's not the way it works, but there are like some real simple things that every single sports better can do to help them in the long run, get better. And they're not really ever talked about because the the space is just so focused right now on picks and some type of content. And like Davis, I, I don't like, I'm not, don't mean disrespect when I say this, but you don't really take yourself seriously in the sense that you're not coming across as like I'm a professional better go out no. and do this. No, Whereas, I don't ever
1: want anyone to think that about me. Like I'm here to have, I'm here to have a good time for
2: the most part. Exactly. And I think that there is a market for that. And I actually don't think that there's damage being caused by stuff like that. But when you get people who are calling themselves experts or professional betters, and these are people who are either selling picks, making the, you know, the vast majority of their living off of pick sales, long-term losing betters that don't keep track records, things of that nature. Then you, it's very easy to mislead the general public, and we have all sorts of that happening. Like, look at some of these these Instagram accounts that I see of people selling picks and uh, like posting Instagram stories of them going thirty and one and whatever, and the followings that they've built up. Like, there's people making millions of dollars off of pick sales and just absolutely, you know, cleaning out recreational gamblers. Um, and unfortunately, on the recreational gambler side of things, they just don't know any better. So. Um, I mean, it's a very complicated space right now. Obviously, a lot of people see dollar signs in it. I mean, I see dollar signs in it. I'd be completely upfront with people when I talk about Betstamp in general. Like, Betstamp is a licensed affiliate. We send players to sportsbooks as well, and we get a, a commission whenever somebody deposits in a sportsbook. But for me, the end goal is to send them there with a chance and actually provide them with some sort of utility where I can say you know, I'm not just sending somebody over for the sake of sending somebody over. I'm actually giving them the tools where in the long run, they will improve their craft. And that's very important to me. Uh, whereas I think the, the majority of the space right now is the complete opposite. And it's just like, how can I make a quick buck? Um, which I mean, that's the way the world works, but, um, unfortunately in this space, uh, it's causing a lot of damage, I would say.
1: Yeah. And, and that, that is, I, I think the role of content providers is, is pretty interesting because there can there can be a symbiotic relationship between sending people to sports books and and providing them with content um, you know, which is depending on how you get your affiliate revenue, right? Like some I, I don't I don't actually know how much this still happens, but I know that in the past, it's operated on like you get chunks of losses, right? And that is that is not ideal. and I, I know that those deals have been sort of weeded out. Like I, I know, like, I don't know how I'm not, I don't have my hand in everyone's pocket, right? Like, I don't know how everything works, but that is largely, um, hopefully I think a model from the past.
2: I, I believe so. So I, I used to consult in the offshore gaming space for some of the biggest sports books in the world. Um, but that operated in gray area. So I'm very familiar with how this works. Um, what you're referring to is a revenue share deal. So typically, yeah. whenever a player goes to a sportsbook, you would you would get a cut of their losses. Now those are are they don't tend to exist anymore. Sportsbooks will negotiate them if you really like, but their their preference is just to pay what's called a CPA cost per acquisition. Uh, you send me a player to my sportsbook, I will pay you x amount of money one time fee as soon as they make a deposit and place a bet. Um, so that's the vast majority of the deals now. Uh, But yeah, there are some old legacy rev share deals, um, which I mean, obviously that's kind of like a conflict of interest for the affiliate because it's in their best interest to provide as much misinformation as possible to get people to lose at that sports book so that they can make more money. That's just like one of the many problems with the industry in general. But thankfully, those um, at least in the regulated market now um, with the likes of DraftKings, FanDuel Points, BetMGM, so on and so forth, um, they're exclusively paying CPA deals.
1: Which is, you know, which is is definitely good. I mean, it's still, I guess at the end of the day, it, it, it's, it's kind of a snake that eats its own tail, right? Because, uh, let, you know, let's let's charitably say, uh, you know, that in general, the picks that I would give out on our show on sports, let's say that I am like basically losing to the rake. I, I actually think maybe I'm a little bit better than that, but also I'm doing things like, I don't know, I, I only bet NFL games if I can get it, on a Sunday night or a Monday morning,
2: Mm -hmm.
1: probably most of the people that are listening to me, give those opinions are literally probably waiting until Sunday morning. Like they're probably waking up on Sunday morning and, and, the things with, with player props and stuff like that. So, you know, what let's, let's factor out like reality for a second, like, like how people actually play, but what, what would even the ideal relationship be between betting site sports, betting content and, and the consumers be.
2: It's a difficult question to answer because each consumer is looking for something different, Something different. Right. And, and the reality is I have no problem with, with people like entertaining sports betting content. I have zero problems with that people that don't take things seriously. Like I do a Friday show every week with Pat Mayo um, who's big in the DFS space as well. Um, and like, we just have a laugh for about an hour every Friday and we kind of just joke about how we, you know, we all stink and don't really know what we're doing type of stuff and brag on each other's picks. And there's a market for just the entertainment component of it. Like there's not a lot of people that are leaving that show and saying, oh, I'm going to parlay all these guys' picks because we're not really taking it seriously. And I think that's kind of like the key for me is like, um, at the end of the day, just don't sell yourself on being something that you're not. And the reality is there's just too many people selling themselves on being experts right now. Um, you know, you look at the big affiliates in the space, like the Action Network, who's putting out a ton of picks pretty regularly. Um, you know, you have guys like Simon Hunter on the Action Network who just constantly say things that like, are be the, the most obscene things I've ever heard coming out of who's what's supposed to be a professional sports bettor's mouth. Um, And people buy into this stuff because they caption him as a professional sports veteran. There's people who've grown followings on on Twitter and Instagram and TikTok over the last few months, um, several thousands of followers now that have no idea what they're doing, but maybe started posting pics and went on a hot streak to start. And now have passed themselves off as an expert in their their betting craft, and I think the reality is a lot of professional betters and and sharps and people who do this for a living kind of look at that stuff and laugh. And we can kind of pinpoint someone who's a fraud right out of the gate. But the reality is that a you know a casual better can't do that, so it, it's tough. Like I don't know what the relationship between content creators and and the consumers should necessarily be, but I can tell you just the the problem I have is people who pass themselves off as something that they are not. And it's kind of like intentionally misleading. um, Other people are there that that are out there. So um, it's tricky. uh, And I think a lot of people that are misleading others, maybe are not even aware that they're doing so because there's like this, such a a big ego on sports betters in general that, you know, there's people out there that think that they're really good at picking games and they're really just coin flippers in the long run. And that, that, creates like an added layer of complication on top of everything. So it's very difficult because, um, right now there's obviously a market for that type of content. I think down the road, people are going to start to realize, I mean, it might take years, but maybe I should stop following, um, you know, so-and-so because they don't really know what they're doing and maybe I'll try to work out, um, my own picks and my own modeling or whatever. And we know we're still very far away from that, but, uh, it's not It's not an easy solution, Davis.
1: No, no, it's not. I guess, yeah, for, for anyone listening to this who does content, that would be like the only thing I, I would say is like, you know, just be honest about what you're doing. I don't know, maybe there are some professional people who don't mind. Like, you know, Rufus has never done picks, but he had the Massey Peabody site forever that was basically like, this is how we rate the teams. I used to use that to make um, survivor picks all the time. Like I would, I would use his stuff. Uh, and, and, you know, also being honest about like your mathematical prowess, like no one, no one who has ever listened to my content is like that dude definitely gets deep in the models. (laughs) Like that's not, that's not my thing. I'm, you know, I'm not building like really good yards per play models and stuff. And so like that, I guess that is just, would be my thing. It's just honesty and not even transparency. Like, I don't, I don't need you to post your win loss record. I can probably listen to you talk about football for 10 minutes and figure out, you know, why you're, why you're making your picks and, and stuff like that. Like, cause again, the, the odds that your model would be better than, you know, the Caesar's model or whatever is, is very low probably.
2: Yeah. I mean, like it, it's, it's a tough, like I, I met up, uh, I met Chad Millman, um, in New York a couple years ago, who was, um, I think he's yeah. a director of content for action network or whatever. And we had a pretty, you know, long chat on the side and he's just like, I kind of told him what I thought of the platform and I'm not in love with the picks content or whatever and what they're doing. And he basically said to me like, okay, if, if you're in my situation, what would you be doing instead? And it was very difficult for me to answer that question when I really took a step back and thought about it because there's such a demand for that type of content right now. So who am I to say you shouldn't be producing that? It's just for me. I guess it's more of like from a morality standpoint, it's not something that I would ever be comfortable with. Uh, But in the space right now, I can see why, like, there's just a massive demand for that. And I think back to when I first started betting, I I started betting when I was in high school and and when I went to college. And I used to just look up free play websites of just like scam, scam decappers that would just post free plays every day. And I would bet those. And it took me years to realize that these guys don't know what they're doing, years and years of losing money. And maybe that's what it's going to take for you know, the casual better in the space is like for them to just learn through experience, because right now it does not seem like there's an appetite for a lot of educational content. Um, I, I shouldn't say that, but it's more niche for sure uh, than just the basic um, breakdowns of games. Like, yeah, I, again, no, like no disrespect to Barstool. I think they're running a great business in general, but, you know, just look at the content that they're producing, the timing of the content that goes out there. Um, they're, Directing people directly back into their sports book, which is great business for them, but they're not really helping anybody win. And at the end of the day, the goal is not to help people win. It's to get them to deposit into the sports book. So it's right. Like if
1: the, if the picks are good for them, it's accidental to their, to their money model.
2: Right. And if the picks are good for them, okay, great. You know, the user base deposited, they won. They're going to keep money in the account. They're just going to bet it the next week and they're going to lose. Like the whole numbers on the Barstool sports books are absolutely absurd because of the amount of people that are parlaying games and teasing games. And I mean, it's uh, they're doing great business. Like, I, 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 it's very difficult from a business perspective for me to say, oh, they should stop doing that type of content because it's driving so much engagement and so much traffic to their website. I guess it's just me as like a, a person who doesn't operate a sports book, just saying like, I, I just feel like there's some sort of morality issue here um, when you have all these people passing themselves off as, as expert gamblers in general. Um, and I mean, I could go back to like blind, blind leading the blind type of thing. And it's a great business model. i not saying that it's not, but for me, just on a personal level, I, I have uh, some objections with it from a, a morality point of view. So slightly
1: related to this conversation, do you think the legalization, right? So we're all, we all moved from, from the offshore, you know, bet online, Bovada, stuff like that to, you know, mo- not most, but a lot more States have, you know, FanDuel, DraftKings, uh, bet, which is not legal where I'm at yet, but I'm very excited. Cause like, and we're going to talk more about um, like ingenuity and innovation in sports betting a little bit later, but I, I love some of the stuff they're offering do you think that the legalization has been good or bad, not for recreational gamblers, but for you know the syndicates, professional gamblers, and stuff like that? Because that's actually I've not heard anyone address this, right? To be like, you know, as me as a someone who gets millions of dollars of action a week, uh, it's better for me to do it with FanDuel and DraftKings, or it's better for me with you know Five Dimes or whatever.
2: It's um it's complicated, I would say. Um, so there's pros and cons. The reality is, as a sports bettor you want to have as many outs as possible. Um, especially if you're betting high volume, the more outs you can have the better. So having more options in the, in the betting marketplace is going to be a good thing because now all of a sudden, rather than having a hundred accounts, I can have a couple hundred accounts. And, um, Obviously, the regulation and the regulatory side of things makes it easier for you to collect your money as well, right? When you're betting offshore, you're at the risk of them not paying you, canceling bets that you can't do anything about. Same thing when you're betting through a PPH and you're meeting up with somebody who's going to pay you cash. They can just not pay you and you have no recourse. So from that point of view, there's definitely advantages. Uh, The problem that I've found with like the regulated space now is there's so much more attention on this space. There's so many people that didn't pay attention to sports before that are now starting to venture into sports. And you're getting smart people from other industries that maybe would have been like day traders or stuff like that, that are venturing into sports. And it's created like this, the best way I could put it is like this early rush to market for every sport. It's like, everybody's trying to get down as quickly as possible and the, the, the way that sports betting works is a sports book will typically release a line on a game. Let's say if it's a daily league like the NBA, they'll release lines for tomorrow at some point this afternoon and at very low limits. Um, and they'll kind of use the early action to kind of shape the market and move the line. And then they'll increase limits. And this is like a cyclical process until tomorrow where there will be some really high limits. The problem is that there's a lot of sharp people betting into very small limits right now and shaping these lines very early to the point where um, it's it's affecting my volume and my ability to get down on games uh, on the day of. So I have way more outs. I can get better prices, but my volume has been affected by people shaping the market a lot earlier than uh, typically would have happened in the past, which is kind of frustrating um, because I, I, I want to have more bets. I mean, that's just the reality right. of betting on sports. So I guess there's pros and cons for sure in the long run. I think it's, it's, it's a benefit, but it has attracted a lot of, um, of sharper people to the industry and has really changed things. I would say, especially over the course of the last year.
1: And I guess that, uh, I mean, that's to the benefit of the, that's the benefit of the two the, it's of a benefit to the books because Lee um, as far as I know there are not any American sports books right DraftKings FanDuel whatever none of these are market makers they're basically copy and pasting lines from Pinnacle from you know other other sports books whether uh, offshore or legal somewhere else and so you know if they can get sharper lines with lower limits and then have the sharpest lines for if you want to bet half a million dollars on a Champions League game? You know, go for it because we feel really good about mm-hmm. our line. Like it, it's a total print fest for them,
2: for sure. And and like that—that's typically the reality of the situation. There's like three sports books in North America, uh, or that that cater to North American players. Actually, Pinnacle doesn't accept U.S. customers, but Pinnacle, uh, Bet, Chris, and Circa in uh, in Las Vegas would be like the three books that are known as being sharp books. Uh, we'll take your action regardless of um, of who you are. Pretty high limits. Then everybody else is going to kind of copy the lines from one of those books, shade it towards their player base. And when I mean shade it towards their player base, they they very like like they know which side the majority of their player base is going to come in on. So they charge you a little bit of extra vague on that one specific side relative to the other sports books, because again recreational players are not price sensitive so yeah, they, they can just minus, get away minus with
1: 110 it. and minus 115 are the same thing if you don't care
2: exactly so uh and then they just kind of print money that way and they know that on top of that a recreational better is much more likely to parlay much more likely to buy points much more likely to play some negative expected value teasers so all that works in their favor as well but yeah in terms of origination it's um it's usually you know, wait for one of those books to come to market. Even bet online would be one of the offshores that posts very early nowadays that some sports books will copy as well. But it's, it's more, um, if they do originate at any point, it's at extremely low limits where there's going to be almost no liability on their end.
1: So the one of the potential solutions to this problem, uh, and this is more for the recreational better than the professional sports better, is the bet fair model, which is not legal in the United States. But many I've heard smart people and dumb people um, both both say that the exchange model is a way a w- it's it's a way to get around some of these obvious problems, which is the sports books get to bet every game plus one ten each side. You know, so it's very rare for sports books to really get wrecked. Mm-hmm. Um it's it's just always it's just always in their favor if you if you think about it that way which um I had never thought about it that way until uh uh Andy from uh Andy MSFW yep. he was the one who who said that to me and I was like holy shit it really is that simple they get to bet every game at plus 110 that's that's amazing
2: which is why like the you you hear all this stuff um you know about fade the public in the NFL right Oh, fade the public. Well, it's, it's not that simple. Like, you're when you fade the public, when you decide that all oh, the public's on this side, I want to take the other side. Well, you have to bet them at minus 110. The sports books get, get to take it at plus 110. There's a very big difference between those two things. You, like, and, and the average person doesn't understand that. And that's why, like, the whole fade the public thing always makes me die of laughter. It's like, yeah, the public's going to lose. You know why they're going to lose? Because they're going to hit 50% of their picks and they need to hit 52.4. That's right. why they're going to lose because there's a built-in VIG. Now, in order for you to be on the same side as a sports book, you're paying a VIG on top of it. And this is such a difficult concept for people to grasp, but the whole fade the public is just shoved down people's throats over and over. like It's like this thing that you must do in sports betting. And the reality is that it's, it's, you're not comparing apples to apples. But anyways, that's a little bit of a side rant, but it's, uh, I, I like that you brought that up because it's something that triggers me all the time.
1: Yeah. The, the, and I mean, you get this in DFS too. It like, it takes a little bit different of a shape, but like sometimes the the sharp DFS players will be like, Oh, I can't believe this 24% owned $2,400 first baseman got there. What a terrible play. And it's like, I don't know, you know, maybe, maybe it's like, not like, uh, you know, uh, uh, Brian Hooper who has been on the show before is like, says like in DFS, you need to stay dynamic. And sometimes the public plays are, their public for a reason um but yeah like just just fading the public as like sports betting analysis is terrible like because you see this all the time like the the chiefs or the patriots or i guess the buccaneers now will be getting like 85 percent of the handle on a game and the line won't move and you'll you'll get the the big brain people that are like if the line's not moving and there's 85 percent of the handle vegas knows something bro like the the buccaneers patriots game right it's so like every every square is on the Buccaneers in that game. I was on the Buccaneers in that game. I'm like, there's no way. And yeah. it I, it ended up failing, but it didn't end up failing because Vegas knew something. It's just like, that's how football
2: works sometimes. Well, right. I mean, there, there's a lot of things that go into it in general, but it, it's like, you know, there, there's, there's all this misinformation out there. And when you're fading the public, you're typically waiting until later in the week to like last minute to see where all the bets are, where the lines have gone. And you're actually doing a disservice by waiting that long. Like the reality is in sports, your best chance to success or, or like the biggest indicator of you being a a successful better in the long run is whether or not you are getting out ahead of the market and obtaining closing line value. And I know like a lot of people rag on closing line value and whatever, but you, you like, when you're betting into a market that's that's efficient and you're like you're waiting for to, to see what the breakdown of public bl- bets splits is it's like you've done yourself a disservice by waiting you could have bet earlier in the week gotten a better number and instead you're getting information that's actually not even really helping your handicap so it's um, it's frustrating but um, I mean at the end of the day it's something that I preach I know some other people preach it as well and it, it it's on, Others that want to, others get to choose whether they want to listen or whether they don't. And I think down the road, there's going to be some people that realize, well, maybe I should have listened to that advice.
1: Right. Okay. So back to the 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 exchange. Yep. Um, I mean, I don't. I guess I don't really have an opinion. I've heard, I've heard smart people be like, yeah, this is like a good thing, like an exchange where uh the the rake is theoretically the rake would be a lot lower because every transaction would just get raked, you know, the way DFS works or whatever, but you know, the book is not having to create the lines or things like that. What are your thoughts on the peer-to-peer model?
2: So I like the peer-to-peer model personally in the exchange model. There's just, there's some problems, inherent problems with that. One of them is liquidity, right? At the end of the day, when you go to place a bet at the, at a sports book and you click submit your bet is in. In a peer-to-peer model, you need someone else on the other side to yeah, be on someone's got to pick it up right and that's frustrating for a lot of people to, to post something in an exchange and then not get a bet on a game because nobody else picked up the other side um, And especially in the US right now not being able to bet across state lines, it's going to be a problem to have enough liquidity within the individual states themselves in order to keep these going. Um, So what each of these exchanges need is someone to seed them. And then essentially that's someone who's just going to post a ton of bets on a daily basis. um, And then hopefully other people will match on the opposite sides. The problem is if I'm seeding an exchange and I've been approached to seed many exchanges before, by the way, all the risk is on my end because now I'm putting in a bunch of bets on games. And then all of a sudden there's a player injury that happens and I'm not at my computer for five minutes and, and everybody just comes along and picks off that line. Um, there, there, like there's obviously ways that you can automate this in some capacity, but either way, there's always going to still be some risk on the Cedar's end. So um, I don't know. I I I like the model. I think it works like in a perfect world, I think it's the best model, but you need enough liquidity for one. And then on top of that, I just don't think that the way where we're at in the current betting space that enough people are price sensitive for it to matter. Like not enough people care to get minus one hundred two on a game instead of 1010. It's actually really sad for me to say that because of the like, you now need to hit at like two percent less to win in the long run. But that doesn't mean anything to anyone, and they're just kind of rooted in their ways. So, um, I, I do like the exchange model. I think it has some some flaws in the in the U.S. marketplace and. I'm not convinced that it's going to win out over the traditional sports vetting model in the long run.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, it would be, it would be nice to be able to, to do that. You would just need um, you just need a, a lot more people to play and you need a lot more people. Uh, you need a lot more people to opt in. Uh, all right. I, I have this one here and we'll go back to serious conversations in uh, in a second, what is the Rob Pozzola all time worst bad beat?
2: Uh, where's, Oh my God, there's, there's, um, there's so many that come to my head. Like uh, I had the Falcons in the Super Bowl against the Patriots. So that's, that's one right off the bat that immediately comes to mind, but no, like the worst one for me ever. And the most I've ever been tilted would be about 10 years ago would be the fail Mary. So I had green Bay minus three against Seattle in that Monday night football game, which was replacement refs. And like, I will ne- that that play is ingrained in my memory till the end of time. Like Russell Wilson rolled out to his right, stopped, rolled back out to his left, throws it up in the end zone. Golden Tate pushes Shams- Sam Shields directly in the back, like right out of the way. Doesn't even catch the pass. Like the DB that's there intercepts it for the Packers, goes down to the ground. Golden Tate kind of like puts his hands on the ball as well. Two refs run in, one rules a touchdown, one rules incomplete. No one has any idea what's going on. It's like pure pandemonium. They go to review where it is clear as day that this ball was intercepted and not caught by golden Tate. Like it was Tariko and Gruden calling the game. They were like, this one's over. Like, we're just waiting for the call. Like what's taking so long type of stuff. Ref runs out onto the field. Pete Carroll runs up directly next to the ref. And while the ref announces that it's, called a touchdown pete carroll celebrating with like calling it a touchdown as well and fist bumping i've never been more rattled in my life because it's the most like this is the nfl like a billion dollar company that has replacement refs the most egregious call like of of all time like it's one of those that it was so egregious that they literally should have reversed the outcome after the game like someone from the league office should have stepped in and said this is by far, like, this is a mistake. It was the last play game. There's not like, couldn't be influenced in any other way. Like we're giving green Bay the win here. That's how bad it was. And I'll never forget that one. Like that one rattled me for, it wasn't even a big bet. It's just like the way that it went down, uh, was infuriating. I'll, uh, it's etched in my brain. Like I said, forever, never forget that play.
1: You know what I do. I do remember that game um i was i i remember where i was i remember who i was watching with i didn't even have i didn't even have you know a, a financial uh, that that was before i was like wow that would have been what 2013 2014 so that yeah. would have been that would have been like before dfs was was like really a thing so i i um i do i remember uh i remember that game very very vividly which is crazy
2: Pete Carroll is, a, is like one of the human beings on earth that just completely rattles me in, in every I don't know what it is. Like everybody has a few people that they just like tilt them to no end. And you can't. Like I can't explain why Carroll bothers me, but that play specifically, I was like just as upset with Pete Carroll as I was with the refs, just because it was so like, people have to look up this play and watch it again. They'll never like, obviously everybody remembers this play. But just the, the referee coming out of replay and ruling it a touchdown on the field with Pete Carroll standing next to him, celebrating the touchdown is one of the worst moments, like sports betting moments in my life. Never, ever forget that. Um, I mean, in the grand scheme of things, I was betting like one one hundredth of what I'm betting now. So like didn't affect me in any way going forwards, but just the, such a demoralizing loss.
1: Do you have, do you have one on the other side where the chaos, the chaos went your favor? Cause I have, I have one sports betting story that was so insane that I like, I like still can't believe how insanely lucky I got. Like, it was like the, the most, it, like every time I, I have a, a similar run bad where I'm like, I cannot believe I lost that one. I'm like, you know what? I got this other one that was so absurd. I can't even be mad.
2: You know what? I can't even, I can't think of one off the top of my head. Because you remember
1: the beats. We all remember the beats way more.
2: I can, I can, I can list off like a dozen bad beats that like were just horrible, but you're right. And I tell people this all the time. Like those ones are the ones that really stick with you at the end of the day, they balance out. Like you're, you're, you're probably going to be 50, 50 over your lifetime or very close to that in terms of like the, the BS that went your way versus the BS that went against you. But it's so hard to remember the ones that went your way. Like I I, I'm struggling as I'm trying to think of like one of those one percenters that I've had, um, like definitely I've bet baseball for a long time. And I know there's been situations where I've had teams come back from, from down nine or 10 runs in a game, which is extremely improbable. I can't name like specifics, but I know that that's happened before, but again, it's, it's not like, it's not etched in my brain. I can't even tell you who the pitchers were or whatever. It was just, it's like the bad beats are the ones that stick. It's the same as poker, right? Poker players say that all the time. Always remember the bad beats.
1: So mine is uh, the the reverse. So it's October second, twenty seventeen. The Kansas City Chiefs. This is um, you know this is the the first year that uh, you know. So Mahomes is on the team, but Alex Smith is the quarterback. We're all feel like the Chiefs are are good, but not great. It's Monday night. I'm living in Kansas City. Me and all my friends from college, like probably ten of us, we go to this game. We got uh, like great seats, like 10 rows back, like very lucky circumstances that we even got these seats. And we all bet Chiefs minus seven in this game against uh, the Washington football team back when when Kirk Cousins was their quarterback. And they end up winning the game. Harrison Butker kicks the go ahead field goal with four seconds left on the clock. And we're like, well, shit, you know, we win. It's great. But we all lost our bet. Uh, the, the, the Washington, I I guess, uh, so Washington football team, they call for a fair catch. They go out to run their first play on offense. Kirk cousin gets strip sacked. And instead of kneeling and Justin Houston picks up the ball and instead of kneeling, it just ends the game picks it up runs to the end zone it's total pandemonium we actually broke one of the chairs in our section from jumping up and down and I carried the chair out with me I still have the chair in like in my uh, in my den it's like it's I'll never forget it because it was the most absurd outcome ever
2: That's, I mean those are like I've probably had something like that before I remember I've won a game like I don't remember the specific game but I won a game on one of the teams intentionally taking a safety to end the game to run out of the clock. This happened like not too long ago, either. It's probably like three or four years ago in the NFL. It might've been the Ravens or maybe the 49ers who intentionally, instead of punting the ball back because there was a risk of getting it blocked in their end zone or return or whatever, they just basically ran around in the end zone for 10 seconds, took a safety to end took the,
1: game. the safety. Yeah. yeah. So,
2: and and that, I think that worked in my favor, if I recall correctly. But again, I don't even remember the teams well enough. I just remember like a brief like outline of the play. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's sports betting, man. It's pretty crazy that some of these end game scenarios in the NFL, especially are just are so absurd.
1: Yeah. Um, all right. One of the, you, you hear this stuff all the time. Players get limited. Uh, you're not able to bet certain things like, oh, you can bet, uh, you know, you can bet whatever you want on an NFL total. But if you've been crushing, you know, WNBA, you're, you have like a $50 max bet on, WNBA. You can't bet player props, but you can bet golf futures, right? Um, do we ever see a scenario where sportsbooks either choose to not do this because they're so popular and so many people, right? Like someone can make a million dollars on our sportsbook a year if we are making 200 million on, you know, all these other people who are, you know, 48% or whatever. Like what, what is the future for specifically American sports books in terms of limiting people?
2: I think there is eventually going to be a time when this changes. I don't think it's going to happen in the near future right now, uh, because this is actually not a problem for the vast majority of betters. The reality is it's it's a super minority that's affected by this and all the complaining that they're doing. I mean, I'm not, I'm, I'm, I'm limited almost everywhere or, or in a lot of spots, I should say like I don't really complain about it because this is going to fall on deaf ears. That's kind of the reality of the situation right now. I do think though that eventually at some point there is going to be an operator in this space with a little bit more of a risk appetite that comes in caters to, um, a, a sharper, better and the recreational better, like all encompassing. And that it's going to force other sports books to change their business model. Um, because I do think that like, that's, I'm like, it's all about user experience for at the end of the day. Right. I, like I said earlier, I used to consult for offshore sports books. I would always just say like, if you were a customer of this sports book, like, would you want this to happen to you? And if the answer is no, then don't do it. Like it's a very simple process. Just keep the customer happy. And eventually at some point, I think there's going to be a sports book that either learns this or a new one that enters the space and just says, you know what, if we, we mess up a line, We'll just eat it. Like, we'll, we'll right. take the hit, and we'll let because that guy's just gonna, you know, win the bet and bet more money into his account. And at the end of the day, it's gonna be a wash. Like, um, you know, if this guy's winning money off of us, all right, you know, kind of we'll we'll let it be. Maybe we'll lower his limits, but maybe not to five dollars or something like that. Maybe there's an option down the road where you, they cap you at a. I, you know, I've talked about this in the past before on some other podcasts. But if if I want a three thousand dollar bet and the sportsbook's only giving me one thousand. Well, maybe they give me the $1,000 bet and then they put a $2,000 into some sort of exchange and they match me with other players who want the opposite side, Want the opposite side. That way I can fill my bet. It's not all the liabilities on the sports book and everybody comes away happy. So like there's other solutions that, that can come across. And yeah, we're still in the infancy here. Like the reality is everybody, it was like a rush to market regulated market. Like we need to get involved. We need to be involved right from the get-go and, um, these, these books will learn over time what's working and what's not working. But you see a lot of stuff about companies like reporting negative uh, NGR net gaming revenue at the end of like a quarter. And you're like, how is this even possible? It's while well, they're spending so much money on bonuses to attract players. Yeah. But customer on top of-
1: acquisition is it's like, it's huge. I mean, they give out like, every day. There's like a $200 free bet somewhere.
2: And on top of that, retention rates are very low because, okay, I lose all my money on one book in a week. I have a pretty piss poor experience. Okay. I'm just going to go to another book and deposit there. I'm just going to stop betting. And like, that's the situation. And there's ways to keep people around a lot longer that, uh, I don't think these sportsbooks have figured out yet because they're very concerned with, with the bottom line right now. And instead of, of being, you know, concerned with extracting every dollar out of a player instantaneously and getting them to play in the casino and whatever, they should probably be taking a longer term outlook of, you know, if we can keep this person around for five years, he's going to be worth a lot more Uh, and it comes down to customer experience. So uh, I think lessons will be learned along the way. Things will be very different a few years from now, but uh, we're still very much in, in the infancy of sports betting.
1: So along those lines, since we are in the infancy, what are some of the innovations that, you know, you would think it would be a good idea for some of these sports books to do? Because side, total, even, even like player props and stuff like points bet with their like cascading models, um, I think are, are really interesting. And like, there are lots of things that sports books can be doing to push the boundary, offer new products, offer new ways to, to wager on games. What are some, you know, that you
2: would be interested in? I'm not a super creative person in general. Yeah, me, um, me either. So yeah. this is difficult, but I I've all, I've long said that, I think there will eventually, a sports book will enter the space um, that's maybe not even a sports book. Like I'm just saying sports book, but what I'm trying to get at is that- Yeah, it's, they're
1: like a gaming company or something. It,
2: it won't be a traditional sportsbook layout. It'll be something that's brand new and innovative that just appeals to the masses because there's a barrier to entry for people getting into sports betting. Like People don't know what minus 110 is on when they log into a site or what a point spread is if they've never seen one before, what a money line is. Right. And I think there's a, a way to really simplify that, um, especially for a younger demographic who's potentially not been involved in sports betting just yet. So for me, it's all about innovation in the sense that I, I think that there's a market that's not being captured yet because all the operators that came into the space just replicated all the offshore sites. Well, let's look at what Bovada's doing and bet online and, and Bookmaker and whatever, and let's just build a site that looks exactly like them. That, and that's fine for the established sports betters already, but for the ones that are, you know, new ones coming into the space that don't understand, I mean, it's a barrier to entry. So I think there's a a way to really, really simplify things um, and come up with like an innovative way to present sports to people. I don't know what it is. I'm not the guy that's going to come up with that solution because that'll never be me. Um, But I do think down the road that there's going to be some competitors in market that just look completely different uh, from these. Major operators that are going to steal market share.
1: Yeah, I mean, if I, if I, I mean, certainly, if I had, um, if I had like a real answer to this question, I would be uh, aggressively working on building it and creating it and trying to make uh, millions of dollars, as opposed to, you know, hosting podcasts and stuff. But I, <laughs> I do, I think that there is, there is something out there. There is a way out there. I think there is, um, there, there is like a. A crypto uh, equivalent to this, like a, a blockchain equivalent to sports betting like that. I mean, you come up with a good crypto or blockchain um, sports product at this point, and you are just going to be, uh, you're going to be really rich because those are two markets where money just absolutely flows in, you know, uh, <laughs> and over fist, which um, brings us to our, our final talking point here. Uh, I just ask everyone about this at this point with, um, with NFTs, like, are you in? Are you out? What is your uh, exposure? Do you think that NFTs are like an inextricable part of our society? Is it is this beanie babies? Like where are you at with them with NFTs?
2: First and foremost, I'll preface everything by saying I'm not a financial advisor yeah, no, in any stretch no of the imagination. No financial
1: advice on this podcast. And, and
2: I'm um, uh, I like. I am a risky person. Like I, I'm I'm not risk averse like my wife right. is. It's kind of like I, I don't I have no problem throwing away some money on something that could go to zero or right. could potentially blow up. That's just kind of, of who I am. And I've, you know, I've been involved in crypto for years and, and I'm in the NFT space. Now I will pretty much at this point throw money at any product project that's in its infancy. Because I think that there's just a boom potential for anything. Like it reminds me of all the crypto ICOs that, that came out years ago. Big time. Yeah. Um, and like, is this a bubble? Yes. Like it, it will burst at some point. Like a lot of these NFT projects are going to go to zero at some point. Does that mean that you cannot make money in the short term? No, it does not. And I think it's a very lucrative market right now. I will hold my punks till probably the day I die. I can't even imagine what I would ever get out of the punk space because I think that's one of the NFTs that has some long-term lasting value, Um, especially with what the floor is for punks right now. Um, The reality is that most of the people that own punks are not people that are going to have to sell their punks if the the floor drops 10% overnight uh, type of thing. So I think in the long run, they will retain their value. But I think a lot of these other um, NFTs are doomed in the long run. With that said, I'm happy to speculate. You know, I have some like Wanderers now and De Gen oh, wa- Nights. The, wan-
1: the Wanderers are the best. Dude. The wa- I I have a Wanderer and I'm n- I'm not gonna sell that thing. Like those are the w- Wanderers and um, uh, Penelope's Country Club are the two that I have in my wallet that I don't have listed. I'm not selling them. I don't even look when I get the Wrapped Ethereum offers for them. Like anything else in my wallet pretty much i would sell but wanderers and the purse just not a chance those are those are there to stay
2: the wanderers um yeah i got like got those very early i targeted like the bong trait and the uh alien boobs trait as well Classic. which is like yeah like it is just like anyways it sounds so dumb obviously and it kind of is but it's still amazing so um, yeah, that's kind of just like what I'm, I'm into at this point. I'm not going to chase the steam on a lot of the NFTs that have already boomed, but if there's like a new project, even if it could go to zero, I'll invest a few ETH here or there and, uh, hopefully one of them takes off. And that's just kind of like, I, I mean, I like money. I like to, I would like to be able to retire in, you know, five, 10 years and just kind of do what I want to do. And I think that for our generation, Davis, I think this is like, you know, for my parents generation it was land and, and yeah. housing where they could buy like houses at very affordable prices. They could buy land at very cheap prices for us. It's crypto and NFTs. It's like, even I look at the price of Ethereum now and even Bitcoin and I'm like,
1: I'm like, yeah, that's going to go up eventually over the course yeah, of my r- life. Right. right. Like
2: people be like, Oh, I missed the boat. I should have bought yeah. Ethereum when it was like, Oh dude, I hate it. I
1: hate, it. I hate the, I hate the people who think like, Oh man. Yeah. Bitcoin $65,000. I, I guess I guess I'll just have to invest in something else. Like, I, like actually, I, I get this um, via DM all the time because I talk about crypto, but people will be like, yeah, you know, I'm trying to get in on NFTs because I missed the boat on Bitcoin. I actually just told someone this the other day, and I was like, if you have, like, little to no Bitcoin and you're getting into NFTs, you're doing it backwards. Like, Bitcoin is the thing that you need to start with and then work from there
2: even if you're risk averse, like it's I, I, my, my brother and sister and, you know, my, my in-laws and my friends, and they're always it's the same boat with them. Like, oh, why would I buy it now? And it's just like, listen, like take 5% of every paycheck you get every two weeks and just split it between Bitcoin and Ethereum and just do that with every paycheck. And in like the long run, you're probably going to be laughing. And it, guess what? If they go to zero, you're only losing 5% of your wealth. So it's like, to me, it's, it's just a no brainer. Um, and there's still like this deniability of like I transact with crypto every single day and ha- like it's it's a yeah. functional technology like this the world has changed it's very hard to explain this to people who aren't involved in the space and I get it I think there's definitely like a barrier to entry there as well but um, yeah I mean uh, I, I long run I, I mean I still think that there's a lot of these I'm not saying to put all your 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 money into like Dogecoin or whatever. That's not what I'm I'm getting at. Um, I think we're at the point with crypto as well, where in the long run, um, you look at the market caps on some of these altcoins. It's like, oh my god how are how are these this high? And there's yeah, definitely like going to be a that's just correction. Gonna be pain, really? Yeah, that's there's going to going to be pain there for sure. But uh, average your cost in, you know, accumulate over time. And um, I mean, I think we're still in the infancy at least for uh, Ethereum and Bitcoin right now.
1: Yeah. I mean, I I could see an argument that we are early on the concept of like digital ownership and NFTs like, you know, as as the boomers, you know, die off and their their kids inherit their wealth, but like, you know, the idea that um that like I I can't even think of the dustiest thing I have in my wallet but like that Coinbase adding NFTs and more people being comfortable with, uh, you know, long-term uh, ownership of of things in a digital space like that will be a space that explodes. But it doesn't mean that your OpenSea account is going to make you rich. Like the I I I wouldn't even begin to be able to project what the final form of like non fungible token ownership is. Like definitely, I think that a lot of clubs, like things that function as clubs, like season ticket holders for teams and yep. restaurants and things. Like, I think there will be a digital token that allows you access to to all of these different things. That's, that's what I think the most likely like real world application for these things is right now.
2: I would agree with you. Um, I mean, it, it's, listen, it's a very difficult concept for like a boomer, not, you don't even have to be a boomer. Like a lot of people just can't understand the concept or really say like, why is this valuable? But Like, you know, I learned this from um, from Jonathan Bales a long time ago. He had like a tweet that always resonated with me, which was or maybe even an article. I can't even remember, but it was all about, um, you know, when when sharp people around you are doing something like you'd be an idiot not to pay attention to that type of thing. And that's kind of like a mentality that I've always taken as well. It's like I don't really need to believe in it or even understand it. At some point, but if I have a lot of respect in people's intelligence levels that I'm close with, and I all see them going towards one direction, I'd be an idiot to ignore this or not research it further. And that's kind of just like an open mindedness that I have, generally now. And um, I'm glad I do have that open mindedness because I was a very close minded person probably four or five years ago, and that and that's changed quite a bit. And uh, it's led to more wealth because of the NFT space. So um, I, I I mean I definitely think that like. I'm, I'm in my mid thirties right now, you know, anyone in their twenties, even younger than that, they've grown up in a completely different world than where I grew up in. And you can't ignore that. Like there's just people coming up that really will understand this space. And it's not going to be like something that's overwhelming to them because they just grew up with technology and yeah, that, that's where we're at now. So, I mean, I'm not ignoring it. I think NFTs are here to stay in some capacity Will this, bu- like, is this going to correct at some point? Absolutely, it's going to, but the notion of a non-fungible token is here to stay.
1: Yeah, that that is, that is I guess, what I would tell people is like, I don't know, is there a chance that every NFT currently listed on OpenSea, you know, is, is not able to be exchanged for fiat currency? Sure, but like the the societal idea of a non-fungible token. I'm sorry if you hate it, but it's just really, it's not going anywhere. And I, I'm sorry if this is not the version of the world that you like, but it's the version of the world that you got. And you know, it just, it just is what it is.
2: I I mean, it's, when I say adapt or die, I don't mean actually die, but that's like kind of what it's at now. It's a, it's adapt or die. Like you, you, you know, you have to be able to you know, to change based off of, it's the same in sports betting, like new data becomes available. I might've liked an NFL game early in the week. And now all of a sudden there's a bunch of injuries to one team. Okay. I don't like that game anymore. Or the number moved on that game. I don't like it anymore. And that's just like how we have to, we have to apply that to to everything in the world. There's just changes that are going to happen. And whether you like it or not, you, you know, you change your opinion on something based off of the data that's available. And I think there's an overwhelming amount of data that suggests that NFTs, are here to stay in some capacity, and crypto is here to stay in some capacity. Um, So I really don't understand those that want to ignore it at this point, but I mean, to each their own, Everyone gets to make their own decisions. I well, just that- I, I
1: actually do. I actually do get that impulse because people don't like change, and people I, also people who spent their you know time being reputationally short on crypto, they don't want to have to take the L. Like they they just don't want to live in a world where this thing they were saying for years and years is wrong. Like that's hard to do, right? It's hard. It's just very hard to take an L, especially when it is something so massive. You know
2: you think that's because people just in general care so much about what other people think about them these days, like from a social perspective?
1: Yeah, but that's probably always been true. I mean, I would, I would guess that like, uh, you know, you could go back uh, a thousand years and be like, yeah, the reason that, uh, the reason that people were doing this in the dark ages is they didn't want their neighbors to think that they weren't good enough Christians or whatever. Like I, I would assume that's just a very human trait.
2: Yeah. It's, it, it it doesn't apply to me. And that's why I kind of find it weird. I'm like, I really trying to like, I'm going to lose my edge on sports betting one day. It's just going to happen. There's going to be a point where I'm, I'm no longer winning at sports betting. And I'll like, I would have no problem coming out and saying I can't beat sports anymore. Like I'm going to find something else to do for some people. I I, you're right. It's just like a massive problem, I guess, to like live in reality, which has always been weird to me, but uh, I mean, I guess I can understand it. I mean, there's ego on a lot of people, um, there's a there's a number of different reasons, but yeah, it's just like a a weird concept for me.
1: Yeah. All right, there we go. Uh, we'll we'll get you out of here. Tell people how to how to get set up with Betstamp. How to, what they what they should look out for with the uh, with the podcast, and we'll we'll get you out of here.
2: Yeah. I say is to say this with all sincerity, Betstamp, I'm a part of it. I literally use the app every day as a pro sports better, but you don't have to be a professional to use it. There's lots of utility for a casual better, recreational better. So check it out, uh, betstamp.app. If you want to check out the desktop version, or you can find it uh, in the app store or iTunes store or whatever on Android or iOS uh, and give it a download. But um, yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's really a great utility for sports betters. very simple to use. There's a simple onboarding process that will show you um, all the features of the app in its entirety. So um, please give it a, a, a checkout. And if you want to follow me on Twitter at Rob Pizzola, P-I-Z-Z-O-L-A, uh, I do do some NFL content throughout the course of the week, which you can check out there as well.
1: There we go. All right, everyone follow Rob, check out Stamp, and uh, we'll be back next week.